All right, preschoolers, we'll see you a little bit later. Everyone else, I invite you to open up to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Well, the early church living under the Roman Empire, they were confronted with the all-important question, who is Lord? Who is Lord? You see, the emperors of Rome, they saw themselves to be gods and ones to be worshipped. And therefore, they demanded that their citizens worship them and acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. Now, they didn't mind if you had other gods or lords that you worshipped as well. In fact, the Romans had all sorts of false gods for everything. Jupiter was the sky god who protected the state, and the Roman military would worship him at his temple after a winning a battle. They had a god of wisdom and craftsmanship, and she ruled over the school children and education and all the trades. Venus was their goddess of love, Neptune was their god of the sea, and so on and so on. They allowed the worship of lots of different gods. But on certain occasions throughout the year in the Roman Empire, you had to come together and acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. You had to acknowledge his supremacy over your life, just a a pinch of incense towards the worship of Caesar. And if you did that, then you'd be rewarded with a special certificate that you needed in order to buy and sell and trade within the Roman economy. But Christians, don't get upset by this, okay? You can still worship Jesus on Sundays. We can still worship Jupiter when we win a battle, and we can all come together and worship Caesar as Lord over all the lords and gods. If you would just do this one thing with us, then you can experience all the riches of the Roman economy and be a patriotic Roman citizen. Church, the question that the Roman Christians from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds were confronted with was the question, who is Lord? And it's the same question that we must be confronted with as well this morning. Who is Lord? Because maybe you come in here this morning and you have multiple lords. You have one Lord over your politics and another over your education and another over your finances. Maybe you have a different Lord over your emotions and one over your physical health and another over your relationships and your love and your friendships. And the reason that we like to do this, the reason the pagan world has always done this is because of the presence of sin, we all have a deep desire for control. And this is the enticing thing about having all these different false gods. If it's the desire for control. If you're going on a boat trip, then you go and offer up some stuff to Neptune as a way to try to manipulate the situation and take control of your time on the open sea. I mean, it's a bit too scary to have just one God and one Lord that I worship and serve. What if he says something I don't like? or tells me to do something I don't want to do. At least in polytheism, I've got some other options to go try and still keep control and and a way to try to manipulate the spiritual realm in a way that serves me. It can be scary to our sense of control to have one Lord. 
And when the other false lords of the day hear about we have one Lord, we can suffer some consequences and persecution for this. I mean, understand what it meant for these Roman Christians to say that Jesus is Lord. Saying Jesus is Lord is essentially saying Caesar is not. And that would probably cut you off from the Roman economy. And that meant that your family could starve and suffer. It meant that you and your family might end up in prison or thrown out into the Colosseum to be killed for sport. It could be that it meant that you ended up being lit on fire to serve as a human torch for Nero's garden parties. The confession that Jesus is Lord, this is not a confession that came from hearts that only believe Jesus is Lord of Sunday mornings or that he is Lord of just our spiritual lives. To say Jesus is Lord is to surrender to the supremacy of Christ over all things, no matter the cost. To say Jesus is Lord is to surrender to the supremacy of Christ over all things, no matter the cost. You'll remember this overarching theme we're seeing in Romans 9 through 11 about how God's righteousness is getting out to all people, both Jews and Gentiles. In chapter 9, we got to see the reason why. Why can we be confident that God's righteousness will succeed in getting out to all people? And we learn that it is because it ultimately depends upon the sovereign mercy and call of God. But now in chapter 10, we're starting to see the other side of the same coin. More from a human perspective, we're starting to see the how. How is the righteousness of God getting out to all people? And we're starting to see that it's, well, it's through prayer. It's through preaching. It's through calling people to faith in Christ. We learned last week that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, meaning that he is the whole goal, the whole point of the law, that the law reveals to us the holy nature and character of God. The law exposes our sinful hearts to us and shows us that we are guilty in his sight. But the law then ultimately points us to Christ who came and perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law so that we can receive the righteousness of God through faith in him. And if you have received the riches of the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, then what is your rightful response to this news? And that's, why, that's how we're going to outline this morning's sermon. Only two points Um, but it'll be just as long of a normal sermon, but just two points, two beefier points. And the first one being the riches of our Lord. That's what we're going to see first, the riches of our Lord. And second, then we will see the right response to our Lord. The riches of our Lord and the right response to our Lord and what we will be called to do this morning could really be summarized in one word, and that is surrender. Surrender. Church, we are going to be called to surrender to the supremacy of Christ this morning, no matter the cost. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help in this. Father, you are so good to us. You are so good to be a God who reveals himself to us. We thank you, Lord, for this word for access to it, for the ability to read it and speak it and hear it. 
But Father, we know that you need to enable our hearts to really receive this. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this time, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and that you would not only inform our minds, but you would transform, God, our our hearts and our loves and our desires, that you would stir up in us a greater love for you and for one another. Oh, may we see the riches the richness of your grace and your righteousness and your mercy, O Lord, and may you then enable us to respond rightly to who you are and what you've done. Help us surrender this morning to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans 10, verse 5. Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Here Paul is quoting from Leviticus 18, verse 5, showing us that the law of God is not necessarily bad. No, like we learned about in Romans 7 and last week, the law of the Lord is holy, righteous, and good. The problem with obeying the law was not the law. The problem with obedience to the law is us. Never fun to admit that we are the problem, okay? But in regards to obeying the law, we are the problem. Our weakness and our propensity to sin has made it so that no one has kept the law. Like, like yes, whoever does the commandments shall live by them. No one does the commandments. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. God's story all throughout the Old Testament shows evidence of this, that no one has perfectly kept the law. That is, until God himself puts on flesh and comes and fulfills the law for us as our representative. And it is him that we gather to worship this morning. Paul then goes into quoting more from the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy 30 to show us that Christ has done the work that we could not do. Leading up to these verses in Deuteronomy that Paul quotes from, Moses is explaining and rehearsing kind of these blessings and curses that will come upon the people of God for their obedience and for their disobedience. But at the start of chapter 30, it starts to become very clear, even before they've entered the promised land, that they are going to continue in disobedience and that one day they are going to be exiled from the land. But God, through Moses, says that there is going to come a day when God is going to do the heart surgery they need to be done in order to delight in and live according to God's ways. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which is a verse leading up to where Paul's going to quote from. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And this is something Paul has already addressed to us in Romans, in Romans 2, 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, humanity 
And all of us thought all we needed was a life coach and maybe some calorie counting and we'd be good. And God's like, nope, you needed a heart surgeon. You needed a heart surgeon. The problem was way worse than you thought. You needed to be born again. You needed to be a new creation. You needed to have a resurrection, right? He's, he's given us this same truth in a lot of different imagery that you need to have something done by God on your heart. God is going to have to do something with the hearts of humanity in order for us to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul that we might live. And this is what Moses and all the prophets were looking forward to when the Messiah would come, when the Spirit would be poured out, and the law would then no longer be this external duty, but it would become this internal delight. And church, I've got good news for you this morning. The age of the new covenant is here. The Messiah has come, and the Spirit has been poured out. And so Paul, he quotes from Deuteronomy, but he inserts Christ into the mix to show that Christ is the fulfillment of what Moses was looking ahead to. Look at Romans 10, verse 6. He says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. What he's saying here is the the hard work for righteousness has been done. It's been done. You don't have to climb the heights of heaven and search to the ends of the earth to find and obtain a right standing with God. No, Christ has come. Isn't this what we celebrate every Christmas, the incarnation? And what we'll celebrate this Christmas at 10.30 a.m., Sunday morning, here together. It'll be good. I know, I know it'll be out of the, our normal family traditions, but I'm telling you, worshiping Jesus on Christmas morning, it will feel right. Trust me on that one, okay? This is what we celebrate, that, that Christ has come down. We don't have to go up and try to get him. We don't have to go seek out and find him. Christ has come. The Father has sent him. Jesus putting on flesh, he came to earth. The hard work of God and man being reconciled has been done through Christ coming to earth, living righteously to obtain our righteousness and dying sacrificially to pay the penalty for our sins. Don't pretend like Christ has not come. The hard work has been done. He also then says, don't pretend like you have to go to the depths of the underworld to bring Christ up from the dead. No, the resurrection has happened as well. Isn't this what we celebrate every Easter? We worship a risen Lord. And his resurrection was the first fruits of many resurrections to come. The hard work has been done by Christ. Verses 8 through 9, I I know the the wording can maybe be a little confusing, but he's essentially saying, don't forget about Christmas and Easter. The hard work has been done. And church, this is such wonderful news. Because this means that you don't have to have a PhD in theology to experience true life and salvation and joy in the Lord. God has made himself and his righteousness available and attainable even to us who, if you're like me, just simple-minded people. 
Oh, it will take a lifetime to explore and enjoy the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But because of the work of Christ, life with him can start immediately, even through the simple faith of a child. God has done the hard work. Let's not overcomplicate things. God has done the work to make forgiveness of our sins possible and attainment of righteousness a reality. There's no pilgrimage that you have to go on. There's no higher spiritual level you got to get to before you can start to experience this. There's no requirement for you to go clean yourself up first and get your act together and get things all figured out and then come and receive Christ. No, none of that. No, when the Spirit of God applies the work of Christ to us and awakens us to who He is and what He has done, life and salvation are immediately available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Our Lord is generous and our Lord is rich. He's rich in grace and mercy, He's rich in righteousness and in resources. The earth is his and all that is in it. Skip down to verse 12 in Romans 10 and see what it says about his riches. In Romans 10, verse 12, he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Bestowing his riches. I love that. Because you, you have to think about the Roman Christians here. And they're doing the calculations in their head and they're thinking through, hey, if I confess Jesus as Lord, I might not be able to trade in the Roman economy. I might miss out on some riches here. But Paul's like, hey, there are some better and eternal riches awaiting you in Christ. All of these riches here and now, they're his anyway. You don't have to worry about losing them. They're not ultimately yours. But the riches of the Lord are vast. And ultimately, Christ is rich in righteousness. And you, in your attempts at righteousness, in your attempts at at self-righteousness, you are in spiritual bankruptcy. And you need the Lord to bestow upon you some of his true riches. Church, please understand the riches of our Lord. And please understand your own spiritual poverty. Because it's when you understand the riches of our Lord, and when you understand your own spiritual poverty, that is when you stop fighting with him. That's when you can recognize that he is Lord of your salvation and he is Lord of your righteousness and you can stop fighting him. And you can stop fighting him and his riches. And this is what I mean. Maybe I'll explain it a little better this way. Isn't this what happens at restaurants when people fight over the bill? 
Before, when I used to work at the hospital, I used to, I used to love to, to grab the bill, offer for the, to pay for the table. You know, right when you get at the, the restaurant, you, you pull the waiter or waitress aside and be like, hey, I've got the table, bring it to me, you know, and you do that. And some of you are like, he never did that. It's with other people. Other, just trust me, I did that with other people, okay? But I used to love to do that. But since working for the church, I've developed what's called alligator arms, right? Where you reach for it, but you don't go full, full extension, all right? They teach you this in seminary to survive in ministry. You don't, you don't go all the way. It's, alli- it's a medical term. Ethan will back me up on that, all right? But listen, if we have the means, most of us don't we want, don't, like if we have the means to pay, most of us don't want someone else to pay for us, do we? We don't like it. It's difficult for us to receive that. Because we feel like things have been taken out of our control and we don't like having to depend upon another person and their work and their riches. But what's the difference when you're a kid at a restaurant? Like, what's the difference when we go out with the boys? There's no fight over who's going to pay the bill. Why? Because they know they don't have the means to pay And maybe whatever they think they do have, it was given to them as gifts or from grandparents grossly overpaying for lemonade. (laughs) And so future men in the front row, if a waiter or waitress ever comes up to you and asks you how you are going to pay for the food you are ordering, you look at me and you say, I'm with him. And why can you say that? You can say that because the work that I have done has got you covered. And listen, if Poppy or Grandma or Granny are with you, you look at them and say, I'm with them, all right? Okay. But church, if the most favorite evangelistic question actually plays out when you get to heaven, and I'm not sure it will, but if you find yourself in heaven and God asking you why, you should, why he should let you in, you look to Jesus and say, I'm with him. I'm with him. Church, when the enemy throws your sin in your face and asks you how you're going to pay for it and get rid of all this guilt, you look to Jesus and say, I'm with him. When you yourself are doubting whether or not you have the strength to persevere and make it through the trials of life, you look to Jesus and tell yourself, I'm with him. Stop trying to fight Jesus for the bill. You are spiritually bankrupt. The account in your righteousness checking account is nothing. It's negative. And whatever spiritual money you think you do have, it was ultimately a gift from God. What do you have that you did not receive? Do not fight God for any credit for your salvation. Submit to the riches of our Lord and his righteousness. Receive and believe that your only hope in life and death is that you belong to Christ and you are with him. And his work has got you covered. He bestows his riches on all who call on him by faith. But we love to fight to earn some of our own righteousness, don't we? Now, why do we do that? Well, I think one of the reasons we do that is because we like control. 
And it's the truth that Jesus is Lord and we are not that directly confronts this desire in us for absolute sovereignty and control of our life and salvation. And anytime we feel like we're losing control, we go berserk. We go crazy. Which is probably a little bit of a heart check moment for you. If you find yourself freaking out and going crazy, in that moment, you need to prayerfully assess it because that might be a sign that there is something you have not fully surrendered to Christ that you are afraid of losing in that moment. It's getting out, out away from your grasp and you're panicking. But one of the most wonderful truths in the world, one of the most freeing things from confessing that Jesus is Lord is that you can't lose what you've already surrendered to Christ. You can't lose what you've already surrendered to Christ. And so look with me now. Look at the, the right response to the riches of of our Lord. We've seen the riches of our Lord, but now let's, let's look at, at verse 9 and see what the right response is to the riches of our Lord. Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord, church. Jesus is Lord. And this is a big point of emphasis in the New Testament. To give you a frame of reference, Jesus is referred to as Savior in the New Testament about 10 to 20 times. Jesus is referred to as Lord about 700 times in the New Testament. So this isn't a minor point or a subtle thing that God is trying to teach us. We must, yes, preach Christ as Savior, but we must also preach that he is Lord. Now, when Paul writes that Jesus is Lord, and when we confess that Jesus is Lord, there are a few components to what this means and what Paul intended it to mean. And the first is this. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is God. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is God. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that many of the Jewish and Gentile Roman believers would have had, this same word, Lord was used of God's personal name, Yahweh, over 8,000 times. And so there would have been no question that by saying Jesus is Lord, Paul is saying that Jesus is Yahweh. And for the Jewish believers, they knew the significance of saying Jesus is Yahweh. That's the first component of this word, Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is God. The second aspect or component of this word Lord is that this word Lord is referring to the one who is the ultimate owner and possessor of something or someone, right? So if some of our kids, if they view adults as owners, um, think of the Lord as the owner of owners, okay? Jesus is the ultimate owner and possessor and Lord. Think about our English word, uh, you know, for, you know, when we talk about landlord, Right? Who's the landlord of this property? means who's the ultimate owner of this property? To say that Jesus is Lord is to confess that Jesus is the rightful sovereign over me. He owns me. He possesses me. I belong to him. 
He is my master. Everything in the world was created by him and for him. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. Abraham Kuyper, a former minister of the Netherlands, he's famously uh, quoted from saying this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. Everything you have from your finances to your health to your emotions to the civil government you live under, you are not Lord over those things. Jesus is Lord. You are a steward and you steward those things for your master, but Jesus is Lord. Third component of saying Jesus is Lord, and the early Christians knew what they were saying, to say Jesus was Lord was also to say that Caesar was not Lord. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that no one can sit in his throne, and that includes you, And that includes me. To say that Jesus is Lord, this is not saying that Jesus is one of your lords or that he's your spiritual Lord or that he's the Lord of your heart, but you're still going to be Lord of your life because you're afraid it's going to cost you too much to give up everything to his lordship. Because listen, this, as we've talked about already, this had real consequences for these believers receiving this. And as it does for all Christians to some degree, depending on the time and the place that God has put us in, are we going to surrender to the supremacy of Christ no matter the cost? I pray we will. For in reality, we have nothing really of eternal significance to lose and everything to gain from the riches of our Lord. And therefore, oh, what a glorious confession and gift from God to be able to confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is King, and no one else, including myself, can sit in his throne. But not only is this the right response to the Lord in that we confess that Jesus is Lord, But listen, this confession with our lips, this is no mere external lip service. We're not just proclaiming something just to, you know, if we say these things, then God has to respond in this way to us. No, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and genuinely proclaim that, that starts in the heart. That comes from a belief that God raised him from the dead. Oh, believing in the resurrection is so important because it was the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. The resurrection is the Father's stamp of approval that the sacrifice for your sins has been accepted. You see, Jesus did not just come to live and die so that your sins could be forgiven and his righteousness could be credited to you. Yes, that's, that's true. But he also rose from the dead so that you would be raised to newness of life. He died so that you would die to sin. He lives so that you would live for God. Yes, confess that Jesus is Lord, but it gets even better. Jesus is our risen Lord. He's our risen Lord. He's alive right now. 
Jesus is alive right now. And he's interceding for us. And his resurrection has secured our resurrection from the dead. And he's empowering us by his spirit to delight in obedience to his word. Look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now here's where we need to clarify and and be a bit careful. Paul is not talking about two separate things here. So don't dissect these verses too much. Like don't in your don't just start thinking, okay, my heart is believing, so it's through my heart that I'm justified, but it's through my mouth, it's through these these words I'm speaking that I'm saved. Don't don't do that. Let's not dissect these into two different things. Paul is likely using what's called parallelism, which is similar to what is used in Hebrew poetry. And what that means is that verses 9 and 10, they go together and the lips and the heart should not be separated as two separate things. He's not saying that there is this magic mantra that you can say and, and chant and that the work of and that, and that by you saying this thing and doing this thing that then God has to respond in a certain way. No, that would contradict what we've learned throughout Romans. Christianity isn't just you recite this thing and then boom, God has to respond. No, he's saying that God saves through faith in Christ. And the person who can say with a genuine heart that Jesus is Lord and believes in his life, death, and resurrection, that person will be saved. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. No distinction here between Jew and Greek. Jesus is Lord of all, and he is Savior of all who trust in who he is and what he has done. And his riches are coming on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen and amen. Paul quotes here from the prophet Joel in verse 13. And I'll read that verse in Joel for you, Joel chapter 2, 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Here we see God's call and humanity's response with calling out to God. It's consistent with Paul and the rest of the scriptures. Salvation depends upon God's call, and it involves humans calling out to God. This is what we've seen already in Romans. In Romans 9, Paul explains the why of salvation and what it depends upon. It depends upon God's sovereign call. But now here in Romans 10, Paul explains the how of salvation and what it involves. And it involves humans calling out to God. But the ability to call out to God and to confess that Jesus is Lord, this is ultimately the work of God in someone's heart. This is evidence of the power of the Spirit. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord 
except in the Holy Spirit. And so, oh, what, what assurance this brings us, doesn't it, church? What gratitude this sh- we should be filled with. Can you confess that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe it? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Have you called out to God through faith in Christ? If so, you can know and be assured that the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart, that you are saved, that you are justified. May you know the peace and the joy and the assurance that comes from being able to look to Jesus and say, I'm with him. And to know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there are likely some in here this morning who have never looked to Christ, never confessed and believed that he is Lord, never received him as their Savior. And let me encourage you to do this today. Salvation and life in Christ are not far from you. God has done the hard work. He's made himself accessible and available. Will you finally surrender and fall into his arms today? We are saved by grace through faith. And while justification happens in a moment, our sanctification and perseverance continue for a lifetime. And just as we are declared righteous through faith, so too we persevere through faith. Therefore, church, keep confessing in both word and deed that Jesus is Lord. Keep trusting him. Keep believing that God raised him from the dead. Oh, church, experience the riches of your Lord and respond to him rightly today as well. Because maybe there is some area of your life that you have not surrendered to him. Maybe there's some aspect of your heart or a certain relationship or a certain emotion or a certain even maybe long-term goal of yours that you have not surrendered to him. And here's the dangerous thing about not surrendering something to the Lord. The dangerous thing is that when Jesus is not honored as Lord in a certain aspect of life, that thing can end up becoming your functional Lord. And here's what I mean. If Jesus is not honored as Lord over your finances, then watch out. Your finances are going to become your functional Lord. And they'll be a cruel master. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never have lasting joy. Your thirst will never be quenched. You'll always be anxious. You'll never have enough. But hear this good news today. Jesus is Lord. Surrender to him. If Jesus is not Lord over your government and your politics, watch out. Your government and politics will become your functional Lord. And they'll be a cruel master. 
they'll never fully give what you long for. And as your Lord, they'll stir up anger against your neighbor instead of love for neighbor. They'll steal your peace and joy. They'll take your hope. They'll cause you to forget who is actually sitting on the throne. Oh, be a steward of them for your Lord, but do not let them become your Lord. Surrender control to him. If Jesus is not Lord over your family, watch out. Your family will become your functional Lord. And you'll put more weight on your spouse and kids than they were created to handle. When your family is your Lord, you'll take your desire for control and all the frustrations of not being able to control things out there and you'll seek above all else to dominate and control everything that happens in here because this is what I can control. So I'm gonna squeeze it as tight as I can, control every little thing that happens in this household as I can, control every little relationship and every little person that's in this house. I'm going to control them. And it's suffocating to live in a house where someone is squeezing as tight as they can for control. Steward your household well, but do it as unto the true Lord. And surrender control to him. If Jesus is not Lord over your emotions, watch out. Your emotions are going to become your functional Lord. And they'll be a cruel master. They will rule you. They will tell you what to do and say and how to think. They'll decide how much you sleep at night. They'll blur what you know to be true and convince you of things that are not true. And you'll be miserable, and you'll be convinced that they're out of control, and they're outside of anyone's control. But if Jesus is Lord, they are not outside of everyone's control. If Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord of your emotions. And his truth can transform and inform your emotions. So surrender them to him. Stop listening to them. Put them in subjection to him. Church, when you are living like something is Lord that is not actually Lord, you are not living in reality. You are living like a crazy person. That's why you feel like you're a crazy person right now. You're living like something is Lord that is not actually Lord. That's not reality. Life has become fractured and disjointed. All the while, the true Lord beckons you to come and surrender to him that you might enjoy and experience real life and abundant life. Oh, come and see the riches of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in grace. He is rich in righteousness. Surrender to him. Surrender to the supremacy of Christ this morning, no matter what the cost you think is, for really we have nothing to lose and everything to gain in him. If Jesus is the risen Lord and you are with him, if this is the case, if this is the case, then you will ultimately and finally be saved from every sin that you are tempted with, from every weakness that annoys you and every scabbed wound you keep picking at. Jesus took the wounds of God's judgment so that every single one of your wounds, including your self-righteousness, would be healed. 
And he was raised to life so that we could enjoy a new and abundant life with him. Oh, church, we do have failures. We do have bankruptcy in our past, but we will not always fail for our salvation and victory over everything that comes against us is secured in heaven with Christ. Jesus is the risen Lord. So may we all look to him and remember that we are with him. Let's pray.